All right, if I could have your attention. You probably wondered uh, if you came, especially down Northwest Highway, what all the traffic was. And it was uh, Vice President Mike Pence, I'm told. And so we ran into him in the parking lot, and he agreed to come up and talk. Here. No. <laughs> he could probably do it, though, from what I've heard about him. He'd probably come up here and teach and do a great job. Um, but as you know, this is our Bible study in the Gospel of Mark. And I think this is our fifth lesson. And we are in, uh, appropriately, we're in Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. And so, one of, the, uh, one of the key ideas here, one of the things you'll notice in uh, Mark chapter 5 in today's lesson is that Jesus is clearly omniscient. He has this incredibly huge crowd of people, but he knows what everybody's thinking. It's just, it's just amazing. I mean, uh, he knows the condition of every person's heart, and it's all, you know, he is omniscient. Uh, but the guy in today's movie clip is not at all omniscient. Okay. Question before we get into today's lesson. Why do people come to Jesus? We're going to see, uh, as they have uh, been doing in the previous episodes in Mark, that huge crowds are coming. And when he gets in the boat, uh, can we have the map? Just a, if you can recall the last couple of days, he was originally over here at Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Then he got in the boat and went across uh, the Sea of Galilee to the other side over here to the uh, Decapolis, which is uh, 10 cities on this side over here. And then after the Gerasene demoniac last week, that's a great name, isn't it? Uh, after healing that guy, he goes back to the east side to, in today's lesson of the Sea of Galilee, and I, I meant west side. He goes back to the west side over here to the sea, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, and the crowds have been sitting there waiting on him. You may be thinking, you know, why, why did they stay and wait? Well, if, you're there, if you've been there, you know you can see all the way across the lake. It's only seven, at the widest part, it's only seven miles. Uh, and so you can stand on one side and look and see it on the other shore. And so they knew where he was and that he had gone over to the Gentile side and it was just probably a short while before he'd be coming back. And so uh, as soon as he uh, comes back, they're there waiting on him. And uh, huge crowds, and we saw last week that they were coming from um, all over, uh, all over the area there, all over uh, around Jerusalem, uh, and Samaria, and up in Syrophoenicia, and went further on up. Uh, they were coming from everywhere to see this Jesus that they'd heard so much about. The, sp the story spread uh, really fast, and these huge crowds were coming. And so my question is, you know, what, what do they want? Why are they there? Why do people come to Jesus? Uh, yeah, I mean, 
typically the average person is going to come for that very, and I guess you could call it selfish reason. We would all have it. Everybody wants to be healed. Everybody wants to be whole. Everybody wants to be feeling good and happy and everything. So most people are coming for a purely worldly, temporal purpose to solve their problems and make them happy. Uh, other people who are more in the leadership position and would like to see Rome overthrown, they're coming because they want him to be the political military messiah and throw out the Gentiles that have been subjugating Israel for 700 years and uh, give them their freedom, right? So they had a lot of uh, different, they had a nationalistic approach, they had a health approach, but everybody's coming for their own personal selfish reasons, you could say. Uh, and yet Jesus knows what's in everybody's heart. Jesus knows what's in everybody's heart. He's omniscient in that way. And in today's lesson, Jesus is going to walk through a crowd of people, all of whom want to touch him, hold him, grab him, stop him, talk to him. And they all think that he can do something for them, you know, meet whatever needs it is that they have, heal them or solve their problems or make them happy, I don't know. Uh, and in today's lesson, one, of the, one woman out of that whole crowd will come up from behind him in secret and just touch the back of his robe, of his garment. And Jesus will know right away that she's different. She's different from the rest of this crowd. She's coming for the right reasons. And we find out what those are because Jesus is going to say uh, what he admires about her in, at the end, that she is a humble person with a sincere heart and a childlike faith. She believes in Jesus for who he really is. Uh, and, of course, she's not like the norm because Jesus stops and just visits with this one woman out of that huge, massive crowd of people. He picks out her because she, he knows, has the right heart. And I'm sure the authors wrote this story to point that out. Uh, what does it take to get Jesus' attention? What do we need, in what way do we need to come to Jesus? What needs to be our attitude, our thinking, our reason, our purpose for coming to Jesus? And I, and I got to thinking about uh, her coming up and touching his, his cloak uh, because people, and I know the church in particular, you can study it during the Middle Ages all the way up to the Reformation, really, the church uh, was selling uh, uh, relics and bones of the saints and all this stuff because people thought, you know, if they could have any of that stuff or own it or touch it or whatever, you know, they're, they'd be forgiven or they would uh, be healed or they, you know, get whatever it is that ails them taken care of. Uh, and so this has always been going. People's got this idea that they worship inanimate objects instead of Jesus. So when she comes up and touches its cloak, uh, Jesus makes it clear that it wasn't my cloak that healed you, it was your faith, right? Uh, but, but I find it interesting that people all over the world today even, and throughout history for the last 2,000 years, have put their faith in things, in inanimate objects. It's just nuts. But that's how far off uh, we are, the human race is. 
Uh, you've probably heard of the Holy Grail. There's th just three objects that I'm aware of. Uh, I'm sure there's thousands of these things. But the Holy Grail, I looked that up, and there's been a quest for that thing for the last 2,000 years, and people still believe that it has some kind of magic property that if you could get the Holy Grail, you would be healed and have immortality. And, of course, what is the Holy Grail? Grail is, uh, I think, the Latin word for cup. So the Holy Grail is Jesus' cup that he drank from at the Last Supper, right? Uh, and so if you could just find that, if you just had it, and uh, there's been all kinds of books written and maps that were sold about where it is, and people have been out trying to find it all this time. Uh, there was another uh, movie that Richard Burton was in in 1953 about the robe because uh, people thought if you could uh, somehow find some of Jesus' clothing, in particular the robe that he had on that the soldiers uh, you know, gambled for at the cross, right, his clothing, if you had that, it would you know, be some incredible thing that it would have holy properties and heal you or whatever. Uh, and so... Uh, the Shroud of Turin and all these kind of things people are dying to see and touch and, and own. Uh, we had some amazing uh, deal like that happen when uh, 2008 when I took a group to Jerusalem. We went to the site, and I think I did it again in 2010, and it was still there. I took a group to the site of the, uh, what's believed the Last Supper, the upper room where the Last Supper was. And... Uh, you know, the building that's there now was, of course, built uh, much after that, but it's supposed to be the actual site of it anyway. So, so tourists come there to the upper room, and they kind of say, well, this is what it would have looked like or been like or something like that. So we go to the upper room, and, and we're uh, going in, and it's a, it was a large room about like this, about, about this size. And uh, I had about 45, 50 people, and we were like in one part of it, and there was a whole other group in the other side, and there was a golden tree on the top of a table. And they were all down on their knees praying and, you know, doing all this emotional stuff and praying, it looked like, to the tree. And so we were all going, what, what is that thing? What's that? You know, thinking there was something special about that. <laughs> and he says, all oh, these dumb dumbbells that come through here they're looking for anything any you know thing like that to worship he said it just shows you how crazy religion is they made a movie here last year and that was one of the props and they left it here <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he says that guy probably told them that that was here when Jesus was here or something you know <laughs> so they're over there praying to it and everything right uh there's no power in the Holy Grail. It's not holy. There's no power in the robe. There's no power in the golden tree. All power comes from God. He's the one and him alone that can give them what they need. Which is just incredible irony in, in that, isn't there? Because uh, people seem to be uh, ready to go anywhere and to do anything in order to get what they think they need. When really Jesus has got there, got it right there for them. People will pay and have throughout history gone, gone to Rome and other holy sites and paid huge amounts of money 
for these relics and bones of the saints and all this stuff, when what they really need is offered by Christ for free, for free, see? And so today's lesson, you look at it in verse 21, uh, Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side. So he's back on the west side, on the Jewish side. The west side in those days was Jewish and the east side was Gentile. So Jesus had come back to the Jewish side and still a great multitude gathered about him and he stayed by the seashore. Based on the last three lessons, I'm wondering if the guy ever slept. I mean, I imagine his disciples were just kind of walking zombies because so far we've been through uh, three days of this kind of activity, hectic activity, and, and he hadn't been allowed to sleep yet, right? And so they get out of the boat and immediately accosted by this huge crowd, this great multitude gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore there because he, he couldn't get through them. He was stuck there. They were all over him. Uh, and what we're going to see uh, in this lesson now, in the stories that, that are coming up in chapter 5 now, is a series of contrasts. Uh, a series of contrasts. Uh, there's going to be an anonymous woman. There's going to be a synagogue official, Jairus. And this synagogue official is going to be a great contrast between he and the woman because the synagogue official is a leader, he's respected, he's religious, he's an insider, he's wealthy, very visible, everybody knows him. On the other hand, you've got uh, this woman who's there who's anonymous. We don't know what her name is or where she came from. She's veiled so nobody looks, can look at her. Uh, she's a social and religious outcast. She's unclean, she's broke, she's a sinner. She's hidden from everybody. Uh, she's a recluse, an outsider, all these things. And the two of these people are going to come to, they're going to be intertwining stories between this man, Jairus, and this woman. They're going to come together in this story here in chapter 5. Um, and the touching of the crowd here, I think, is very aggressive based on what his disciples are getting ready to say. Uh, <laughs> and they're amazed at Jesus' awareness that this woman touched him because they're going to say, everybody here is touching you. <laughs> you know, there's a thousand people touching you. What do you mean? Uh, and so the crowd was very aggressive, uh, and they came purely for their own emotional and personal needs. And then you've got the touching of this woman who we'll find out has a pure heart, a childlike faith, and uh, Jesus honors her request. But what do they all have in common? What do they all have in common? Uh, whether you're in the crowd, or whether you're the poor woman, or whether you're the synagogue official, you, you're different in every way, in a worldly sense, but in common, all of them desperately need Jesus. All of them desperately need Jesus. So we have this unusual scene in verse 22 where this respected leader comes and falls on his knees. I'm sure the crowd uh, probably knows this guy. He's dressed in real fine clothes and he's a leader. So they're going, hey, that's, uh, that's the guy who runs the synagogue. Look at this. He's down on his knees before Jesus. 
So verse 22, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and upon seeing him fell at his feet. And I think the authors of the, of the uh, New Testament, particularly the Gospels and particularly the Gospel of Mark, when it's somebody who's still alive and well known by the audience he's writing to, they would name them. When it's somebody that the people you know, probably never heard of or wouldn't know, it's the, per, the, the characters usually anonymous. So if you wonder why he named him and not her, uh, that's usually the reason. And so it'd be amazing that this happened to this well-known synagogue official. So he names him Jairus. He came up, and upon seeing Jesus, he fell at Jesus' feet and entreated him. That's begging. That's a nice way to say begging. He's begging Jesus. I take it that uh, his daughter is deathly ill and he feels that she, she's gonna, her death is imminent. And so he is desperate. He's probably had every medical person and every holy man up there and nobody could do anything. And now it's come down to his last chance is this Jesus that he's heard so much about. So he comes to Jesus in all humility, falls down on his knees, and there he is. That's his actual picture. We... <laughs> and upon seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. So he's desperate. There's a sense of urgency. You need to come immediately. You cannot delay. You've got, we've got to go before she passes away. Hurry, Jesus. Hurry. And what you're going to see is Jesus is just going to, you know, not going to hurry me. You know, we're going to have to walk through this crowd and we're going to talk to people and things are going to happen. You know, sorry about that, Jairus, but that, you know. I'm not as worried about this as you are. And you'll find out why Jesus is not at all worried about this little girl. He seems very calm, and he takes his time, and he stops and talks to this other woman and to his disciples, has a nice conversation with them. And if I was Jairus, I'm going, did you not understand? And I was here first. And my, I've got a greater need than these dummies out here. And so he went off with him, and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. So it's very difficult to make any progress because they're all up against him and pressing in, and they're impeding his progress. There's a hindrance. There's a delay. And all this is going to do is further the drama of these miracles that are getting ready to happen. It's the buildup. And Jesus, of course... Again, being omniscient, knows that. This is going to be the best way to do this. And Jesus knows what it is. See? If Jairus had his way, man, they'd be running. You know? And just knocking people down and, and doing whatever they do could do to get back to his house to save the girl. But Jesus is just calm and relaxed. He's not worried about it at all. So, in verse 25... We have a new character introduced into this drama. 
As I said, this is a miracle intertwined. He's going to do a miracle on the way to do a miracle. He's on his way to do a miracle, and he's going to do a miracle on the way. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She'd been bleeding from, you know where, for 12 years. And she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped. All that she had been freed of was all of her money. She had all these doctors come and charge her, got all those doctor's bills. Nobody here gets any doctor's bills, do they? They're pretty cheap, aren't they? Well, this poor woman had been overwhelmed and to the point of bankruptcy. She had run out of money, run out of hope for anybody to help her. She's desperate. And not only that, there's another detail you need to know about this bleeding. Uh, give me uh, Leviticus 25 or 15 or some passage on it, Larry, can you? Thank you, Larry. What else? Guy's pretty sharp over here. All the way back to the law of Moses. Uh, Moses had given them a law, and of course, in those days, they didn't understand uh, infectious disease, but what he's saying here, if someone has an, inf an infectious disease causing, you know, a flow of bodily fluid, they need to be quarantined until it, you know, is fixed, until it's stopped, and then after they're quarantined and they're supposedly healed up, then they have to be checked out by a priest to make sure that they, you know, that it, that it has. Otherwise, to, but they didn't understand that. And so what the legalists, the religious traditionalist legalists had done is they said, well, this bleeding is because of sin. And what Moses meant was, uh, you need to be shunned and put away because you're a sinner and you're unclean. So this poor woman was not only really sick uh, from this, whatever it was that she had that caused all this bleeding, but she was an outcast. She was excommunicated. She was uh, nobody and was not even allowed. She wasn't allowed to go to the synagogue or the temple and was not supposed to be out in public. According to the law, she, she would be arrested if someone recognized her. So she's taking a great risk just to go out. But just imagine yourself in her position. What would that be like to be an outcast like that? To be shunned by everyone, to be completely alone, rejected by everyone, and considered a no good, dirty, rotten sinner, not worth anybody's time or help? What would that be like? What would that feel like? I remember when I was, you know, like in grade school. I don't know if you can remember that far back. But in grade school, there was always some poor kid. I don't know why, but they, they were the ones that kids picked on. And what did they always say? He's got, he or she's got cooties. <laughs> remember that? And I didn't know what was cooties were, but I didn't want to be anywhere near somebody who had them. And I just, you know, later on thought, God, we, I can't believe we were so mean to those, you know, whoever that was. And I just wondered what that person felt like. And you could just tell from their downcast expression 
that it hurt. It hurt terribly to be excluded, to be treated that way, to be an outcast, for everybody to look at you like you're a scur- scum of the earth, a low-down, no-good sinner. There's no telling what that woman's done, you know. And that's who she was, and that's how she felt. And she's desperate. She's got nothing left. And she comes to see Jesus as her last hope. She had endured everything at the hands of people. Nobody had been able to help her. Nobody. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him. She probably was veiled and covered up and just came up very stealthily. She didn't dare say anything to him or reveal herself. So she snuck up behind him and she says, maybe if I can just touch his cloak, if I can just touch his garments, maybe his power will come through and make me well. Of course, we know that the cloak had no power at all. She's just desperate. But what has power is the object of her faith, Jesus. That's who she came to see. That's who she thinks can help her, Jesus. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. I mean, the miracle has happened. It's happened. And so naturally, uh, (laughs) naturally she... uh, Jesus, being omniscient, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So, so, I mean, he's in this giant crowd. Everybody's pressing against him. Everybody's touched him. But he makes the statement, someone's touched me and been healed. Who touched me? Now, didn't we just say Jesus was omniscient? He ought to know, right? And of course, he does know. Why did he ask her that question? Jesus always does that. He always wants people to step forward and give a profession of faith. He wants them to make that commitment in public, see? And so he asks that question so that she'll come out and talk to him and express herself. But I love it. Uh, in every uh, group, you know, the hero has always got to have a foil, right? Got to have a foil. So naturally, throughout all these stories, Jesus has 12 of them, his 12 disciples. They never know what's going on. So Jesus says that, who touched me? And his disciples go, who, who touched you? About a thousand people. What do you mean who touched you? Everybody is touching you. We can't get through this crowd. They're all over you. Those disciples, verse 31 says, you see the multitude pressing in on you and you say, who touched you? And Jesus looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her. Think of what just happened in her own mind. She just took a chance. She had a little hope and a little faith. And now she's completely healed. After 12 years of torture, 
her encounter with Jesus made her whole. She'd spent all her money and given it to all these guys, bogus doctors, but what Jesus gave her was free. What's her response? It's like all the biblical characters when they find out who Jesus is. Remember Peter, uh, when the miraculous catch of fish in the boat in Luke 5? He was real cocky and telling Jesus, we're not going to catch any fish. Look, I'm a professional fisherman. We've been out all night. They're not here. And then when the huge catch came in, it hit him like a ton of bricks that this was not a mere man. I'm in the boat with God. And he got so scared that he begged Jesus to, to leave him. You don't know who I am. He was totally, suddenly aware of his own sin. This cocky, brash man, suddenly knowing that he's in the presence of God himself, becomes totally aware of his own weaknesses and humanity. And so she's trembling and fearful. And she came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth, laid her whole story out there to him. It's probably a fairly long story, all, you know, all that had happened to her. Meanwhile, Jairus is standing there going, wrap it up, lady. My daughter's dying. I was here first. Can you give us the short version? What's the bottom line here? But Jesus is not worried about that. He wants to hear the girl's story and, and make it a point that everybody understands what just happened. And she'll be a witness to her faith. Because Jesus says, verse 34, he says to her, daughter. So now he sees them as related in the same spiritual family. Your faith has made you well. It wasn't a cloak. It was your faith. You came to me with the right heart. You're, here you are, fear and trembling. And you believe in me. Your faith has made you well. Therefore, go in peace. Well, does that mean she didn't have peace before? Absolutely. She had no peace. She, had, she was alienated. She couldn't go to the synagogue, they couldn't go to church, couldn't go to the temple, couldn't meet with people. Totally alienated from everybody. No peace with anybody. Now Jesus says, go in peace. In the same way, all of us, when we come to Christ, we were living in a state before in a state of alienation, separated from God. But when Christ came into our life, that alienation ended, we're reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. And now Jesus can say to us rightly, go in peace. You have peace. You have peace with God and with your fellow man because of what Christ has done. So while he is speaking to her and listening to her story and talking to her and telling her that her faith made her well and that she can go in peace, while he's still speaking, verse 35, people came from the house of the synagogue official saying, 
Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? No reason for him to come. It's over. What were they assuming? That death is final. Don't we all do that? Death is final. There's no coming back. That's it. There's no reason for Jesus to come. Death is final. And they probably had a big letdown, and Jairus probably hung his head and started weeping. Jesus, though, it's no big deal. Not worried about it. Look what he says. Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, that they said that, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. You've been, a, you've been scared a long time. But I want you to lose your fear. Trust me. And come with me and I'm going to take care of you. So that kind of is a prescription for just about any worries or anxiety or fear that you have. Is do not be afraid any longer. Just believe in Jesus. That's what he was telling him. Faith still trusts in the midst of hopelessness, doesn't it? And Jesus said, okay, we're going into this uh, house, so we can't take this whole crowd. So he says, uh, uh, Peter, you, James, and John, go with me. I want you to see this. It's going to be a teaching lesson. Uh, it's going to build their faith, and it's going to blow their mind, of course. So he allowed no one to follow with him uh, except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. Now we know from other parts other, of the scripture, like in uh, Matthew 9, 23, that at uh, wealthy people's funerals, kind of awake, they, they had hired mourners. It would be a huge group of people that would come to mourn. And just to set the tone for it, they would have professional mourners who were really good at moaning and groaning and wailing and weeping and showing signs of emotion. So they were rolling around on the ground and screaming and, ah, and making all these noises like they were weeping. And Jesus walks into that scene. And entering in, he says to them, to these, all these people making all this noise, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. I mean, they've never heard anything this stupid in their life. The child is dead, you know, and it's not their child, so they can laugh. They're professionals. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, so he, he's, he and Jairus says, these guys have got to go, and they put all those pros out. And he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, Peter, James, and John, and entered the bedroom where the child was. Remember what Jesus said, the child's not dead, she's not died, but is asleep. 
tells you a little bit about Jesus' perception of physical death. Because what he's getting ready to do, he's going to bring the girl back to life. And we know, again, in Matthew's account, what he actually did, it says that he brought her spirit back. Her spirit reunited with her physical body, and Jesus healed the physical body. So that makes it obvious that we are at least bipart, maybe tripart, but we have a physical body and a spirit. And when you die physically, your spirit lives on. Jesus did the same thing with Lazarus in, chapter, in John chapter 11. He brought Lazarus' spirit back to his body and then healed his body that had been dead for four days. And that's what he did here. So he brought her spirit back. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, that's Aramaic for little girl, I say to you, arise. And by the way, I think there'll be a day when all of us will hear that. The day's coming. When Jesus will come back, his second coming, and he will say to all of us, arise. And we'll be reunited, our spirits, with our resurrection bodies. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk. She got up. She was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. Who wouldn't be? Jesus actually brought somebody to life that had been dead three times in the gospel accounts. Um, this is just one of those three. Uh, so this is not a completely unique event, but I promise you it was a unique event in the lives of the people that were there. Their lives would never be the same again. You can imagine. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. Now, why, why the nobody talk about this? Well, obviously, his own disciples are going to talk to their peers there, the other rest of the the other nine guys, and uh, the dad, you know, and the word's going to get out. But what Jesus is trying to do, I think, is inhibit the crowd so he can continue to move around. Plus, he knows that, that most of this crowd is coming for the wrong reasons. So he doesn't want to double and triple these sizes of these crowds, right? And he also knows that it's not time for him to be arrested yet. So he doesn't want to bring this to a climax yet. See, if he does, the, it'll, it'll move the uh, religious leaders to have to arrest him. Because if the people all come together in some type of revolt with Jesus, if they see that coming then they'll have to do something. And, but Jesus knows his schedule, and he's still got over a year left to minister before he's, he's arrested and crucified. So I think there's just some reasons like that that he was telling them not to go out and make a big deal of this and uh, make the crowds even bigger and further incite the Pharisees against him. See? Because uh, I imagine they were already out there checking that woman that had the, you know, the bleeding, trying to make sure if that was real because they were probably ready to arrest her. So he told them not to tell anybody. 
Let me close with this. Um, just see this story as a pictorial, uh, an image of the gospel. Think about it. First, you have the condition of the alienated, alienated sinner, the poor woman, outcast, separated, in verse 25 through 26. And then here comes Jesus, and you see the compassion and the love of Jesus for the alienated, in verse 27 through 29. And then her confession of faith. She was healed by faith because she believed in Jesus. And then she becomes a witness. Jesus says, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And then in the next verse, you see the people. He was also talking to the people about what they had just seen. Don't be afraid for this little girl. Just look what happened to her, to, to this woman. You see? So she becomes a witness for the power and who Jesus is. All right? So let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these great stories and a miracle on the way to do a miracle. And we see how Jesus, see who Jesus is. And I'm sure at the end of every one of these stories, we should all be saying in our own heart, who is this guy that he knows everything? He knows what's in everyone's heart. He knows that that woman believed and she had a good heart. Who is this guy that has the power to heal everybody, but also to save and forgive everybody. Who is this guy? This is the Christ, the Son of God, who took on the flesh and came into the world to save us from our sins. And like the woman, we come to him in humility and in fear of God and believing in him completely being committed to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.